Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for single-payer radio. We are a project of Kentuckians for single-payer health care. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a longstanding community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Just want to stress the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. And speaking of the station, WFMP Forward Radio is Louisville's all-volunteer community radio station, and we're a Pacifica affiliate. Join our movement. Go to forwardradio.org. We'd love to hear your ideas for a show and consider becoming a sustaining member of the station. Single-payer radio can be heard here on Forward Radio, Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Okay, Mike, that's enough for me. All right, Mark, thank you. Uh, Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments that I make during this program do not represent the views of either the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. I'm Eugene Shively, and what I say does not represent the Taylor Regional Hospital nor the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. So our topic today are, is going to be health issues at the, in the Veterans Administration. There's a lot to talk about, and we have a special guest today, uh, Suzanne Gordon, uh, I'm, I'm going to very briefly uh, um, introduce Suzanne, because if I try to uh, mention all of her accomplishments, it would take a half an hour and we wouldn't have that much time to talk with her. So she's both a journalist and an author, has written articles for the L.A. New York Times, Washington Post, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the list goes on, author of 11 books. Uh, many addressing uh, nursing issues and VA health issues. Uh, Suzanne, thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to your comments. And as we have done with our previous guests, we'll give you an opportunity to make some comments uh, for as long as you'd like. And then the conversation will begin. I might ask you, if, as in your opening comments, maybe you could address the issue of privatization. I think this is, uh, I think, one of the key issues about the long-term future of, of health care for the veterans. So the floor is yours. Thank you. <clears throat> so I just wanted to mention that I'm an author. It's actually... Um, books, but that's okay. Um, And I edit a book series at Cornell University Press, The Culture and Politics of Healthcare Work. And I've written two books on the VA, on VA healthcare, um, the Veterans Health Administration. One is called Wounds of War, How the VA Delivers Health, Healing, and Hope to the Nation's Veterans. And the other one, and um, I'm also co-founder and senior policy analyst at a think tank called the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute. And anybody who um, is interested in these issues should, should check out um, it's veteranspolicy.org. And um, I'm, a, I'm a longtime advocate of, of some form of national healthcare, tax supported, publicly funded national healthcare. And I um, have worked a lot with folks in PNHP um, and about I don't know, 15 years ago, I, I became involved with doing some consulting for the, Depart- uh, for the Department of Veterans Affairs, the, the Veterans Health Administration. The v- what we call the VA is um, the second largest department in the federal government after the Pentagon, the DOD. And um, it's made up of a, a bunch of sub- four sub-agencies, one of which, the biggest of which is the Veterans Health Administration. And so often when we say VA healthcare, what we're talking about is the Veterans Health Administration. It applies, it employs about over 300,000 clinicians, janitors, groundskeepers, dieticians. Uh, it's very uh, almost wall to wall union. And 
it consumes something like, I don't know, depending on the year, you know, 80 to $90 billion um, of, of taxpayer money. It has four main missions. One is to deliver clinical care to veterans. Most people don't know about this stuff. Um, it, it, it teaches about 70% of American physicians and over 50% of many other healthcare professionals, nurses, psychologists, PTs, OTs, you know, you name it there at the VA. It really is the hub of the American uh, healthcare professional training system. It is one of the biggest research institute, institutions in the country. Um, I always thank the VA for my shingles vaccine. If I had an implantable cardiac pacemaker or used a nicotine patch, I'd thank them. And the other thing that, that really people totally don't know about is the VA's fourth mission, which is delivering, um, backing up the civilian sector healthcare system in a national emergencies, which it did and is doing as we speak in COVID-19. A VA sent staff uh, to 122 hospitals. It took over a lot of uh, nursing homes in, in the country. The VA, by the way, does not run state veterans' homes. So all those scandals that people heard about in veterans' homes, that wasn't the VA. That's the, they run by the state. The VA does give them some money. But they were actually asked to come in and take over private for-profit nursing managed veterans, state veterans homes in places like North Carolina. And um, they sent folks all over the country to um, help in overwhelmed places where civilian sector hospitals, private sector hospitals were overwhelmed by COVID cases. Um, so I'm a I'm unashamed advocate of the VA as a as a um, the Veterans Health Administration, um, and 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 you know the Veterans Health Administration functions within this larger agency. So, for example, um, a veteran who has PTSD from Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan is on, isn't only getting health care, but they're getting benefits administered administered by the largest benefit organization in the country, which is the Veterans Benefit Administration. And so, you know, you'll get your health, your treatment, your mental health treatment for, for PTSD from the VHA, but you'll get benefits from um, the VBA. And, and these are financial benefits. You know, the VA also tracks all kinds of problems that veterans have or that people have had because of being in the military. The military isn't only dangerous uh, as a job because you can get killed, you know, by friendly or unfriendly fire, but it's dangerous because um, the military doesn't do a very good job of preventing preventable problems like hearing loss or, um, or military sexual trauma um, from sexual harassment or rape or um, burn pit exposures, which is in much in the news now. John Stewart has championed this issue. Uh, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan and, and post 9-11 conflicts, actually pre-9-11 conflicts starting in 1990, um, are subject to, to these burn pits that are used on bases, mostly in other countries. And, and Bo Biden, President Biden's son was a very famous case of someone they think died of a, of a brain tumor, a glioblastoma from burn pits. So veterans have really particular problems. This is really important for folks in PNHP to understand because particularly young ones, think a patient's a patient's a patient. And so, you know, I could take care of a veteran just like a doc at the VA could take care of a veteran. But veterans have really specific problems that a lot of um, providers or physicians don't recognize. And also, and the VA, because all it deals with is veterans, recognizes these problems. I mean, they know how to tell burn pit related respiratory problems from just regular garden variety asthma or, uh, you know, burn pit related, uh, Agent Orange related diabetes from, from other kinds. Um, and also they collect information that tells us about the 
latest problems from the latest conflicts or even just being in the military. Um, veterans have more musculoskeletal pain than, than people of their age cohort. They have all kinds of problems that, um, that are very hard to sometimes recognize. And also veterans are really difficult patients sometimes to take care of because they want you to understand military culture. They want you to understand their jargon. And if you're a vet and you start talking about an MOS or a DD-214, I, I, I learned this the hard way when I was writing about veterans uh, healthcare, you know, a DD-214 is your discharge papers in the military and an MOS is your military occupation, especially. And, you know, they don't trust folks who don't know what that means. And the people in the VA, most of them know what it means. The, the other thing I want to say is, and, and when I do lectures to folks in person, I always ask them, um, to tell me what, when you say VA or veterans healthcare or the Department of Veterans Affairs, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Uh, we can't really do that here. We, we can't ask people what the first thing that comes into their mind is. But often when I do that in a group, um, and it's a nice exercise to do with the listeners, um, often negative stereotypes come into mind, long wait times, bureaucracy, antiquated medical equipment, People have very negative views of the VA, largely because um, the right wing has, has really been attacking the VA, the Veterans Health Administration, for over a decade now, because they really want to privatize it. They want to get a, their hands on that 90, 80, $90 billion pot of gold. They also want to get their hands on the money at the Veterans Benefit Administration, and they've outsourced um, the exams many to private sector uh, enterprises that where the veterans are, you know, come in and 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 make a claim for compensation, and they used to be all handled inside the VA, and now they're outsourcing them. There's a lot of money there, and also the right wing that particularly. The, one of the biggest players in this attack on the VA has been the Koch brothers, now Koch, you know, because one of them died. Um, the, they funded to the tune of millions and millions of dollars a group called Concerned Veterans for America. It's a pretend veteran service organization. They just, their alums have just founded another group called um, Amer uh, Veterans for America First, and they really attacked the VA. And the reason the Koch folks are, and the dark money billionaires are, are um, against the VA if they're not in healthcare is because they hate government anything and they wanna discredit the government. And you know, the, they hate Medicare for all, they hate single payer, they hate national healthcare in any form whatsoever, whether it's, you know, watered down healthcare through the ACA or real national healthcare in a system like uh, Canada or the UK or anywhere else in the world, practically. And, um, and they really use, they want to destroy the VA because they want to discredit the notion that government can have any involvement in healthcare at all. And the VA, while not a pure single payer system, the VHA, it is the only, it's the largest healthcare system in the country. It's the only publicly funded healthcare system in the country. And it's the only integrated and coordinated healthcare system in the country. And the right wing hates it because it delivers very high quality care to veterans at lower cost. You know, a lot of people believe, I mean, one of the tragic things that I see in my long career writing about veterans healthcare is that um, many people on the left, progressives, liberals, they don't buy the purple Kool-Aid about Medicare, Social Security, the National Health Service in England, uh, public schools. They don't buy that. They don't believe in privatization for that. But they actually buy all the negative press that's come out generated by the right and by the healthcare industry, corporate healthcare industry. They buy that and they actually believe that the VA is a bad system. 
And I was recently talking to someone who asked me what I wrote about, a nice, you know, liberal progressive guy. And I said, I write about veterans healthcare. And he said, um, oh, so you're writing an expose. I'm exposing what a great system it is. And um, most people don't know that the VA delivers higher quality care that beats the private sector in many regards and is a shining example for the single payer movement, um, which I believe doesn't focus on the VA practically at all. Um, There's a new book that El Said and Johnson wrote about Medicare for All, a citizen's guide, no mention of the VA except some tiny mention. They talk about, you know, um, negotiated prices for pharmaceuticals. And they say, they kind of wonder like, oh, how could we do that? And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, well, guys, if you knew about the VA, you, you kind of might wander over in that direction because they've been doing this for years. Um, and I took a look um, at the PNHP website and um, I, they, since December 2019, they have had, I haven't looked in the past month, but when I looked at it, they'd had in 2021, they'd had 73 articles about healthcare that they reprinted from different publications. And there was one about the VA. Um, they had a, a discussion of how the NHS just de- dealt with COVID but not how the VA dealt with COVID, even though there have been articles about that. So I, I mean, one of my big arguments to the single payer movement or the national healthcare folks who are trying to get decent healthcare for all of us in this country is you ignore the VA at your peril because believe me, the right wing is focusing on, um, on Medicare for all on single payer, on any form of government health care. And if we privatize the VA and destroy the VA, uh, it's going to be very hard um, to get any form of national health care. If you can't protect a system with a huge, established, much revered constituency that has been around for well, really, since the Civil War and in a minute form, but certainly since World War II, it's going to be real hard to imagine how we could get healthcare like that for the rest of us. And I just have to say that, and I could tell you millions of stories about this. I wish I could get the quality of care that I know that veterans get at the VHA when it's at its best, when it's fully funded and, and fully staffed and you know, the problems the VA has, VHA has, are because Congress just doesn't want to pay the full cost of war and refuses to fund it and staff it. And it aided and abetted by the right, which would like to see it disappear. So that's my little statement. Well, Suzanne, we absolutely agree with you, which is one of the reasons we're talking about it and why we're, we've, we've, we've asked you to come on. And, and discuss this with us. I think, Gene, we're going to let Gene fire the first round across your bow. Well, uh, you brought up the <coughs> privatization, and uh, I'm a retired surgeon. I kind of got bored of uh, sitting around home. My wife was looking for me to something to do. And so I started <laughs> doing wellness exams uh, for a company called Signify Health. And I've run into several veterans who have uh, advantage health care through various companies in Kentucky. Most of them have an advantage, and yet they still work through the VA. And most of the patients have absolutely no idea what the advantage health care plan does and what they pay where the money comes from, and where the money goes. For example, I saw one the first part of this week <clears throat> who was getting, uh, who had lung cancer, and he was getting good care at the VA, and yet he had no idea uh, the Advantage Healthcare Plan and what it was doing. And I was just want to ask, do you have any idea how that works and uh and why is the VA doing that? And why is 
the healthcare industry doing the advantage plans for veterans? Well, there's no such thing as an, a veteran. I mean, you know, I you've asked me a, a question which I am the weakest on, but there there aren't special Medicare Advantage plans for veterans. That I mean, there are veterans who have Medicare Advantage plans, and many veterans are what we call dual eligible, so they can go to the VA and then they can use their Advantage plan, but. I'm assuming that this veteran, he, he can't get into the VA because he has an advantage plan. He can get into the VA because he is eligible for the VA because he meets these various eligibility criterion. Um, I mean, one of the things most people don't know, and most people, most Americans think that every veteran is eligible for veteran health care or the GI Bill, and that's actually not true. Uh, it depends on your discharge status. Uh, it depends on um, whether you have a proven service-connected disability or low income. Thing like 3,000 different criteria, depending on where you live, that determine low income. Um, uh, it depends on, um, you know, whether you've succeeded in, in, in presenting a convincing claim to the VBA. I mean, one of the problems uh, with these crazy eligibility standards, and again, all this stems from the fact that we don't want to pay the cost of war or, or cost of war or the military. Um, uh, one of the problems is that veterans are not told when they're in the military that if they hurt themselves, they need to go to the doctor or the medic to establish a paper trail um, so that if later on in life, their funky knee, you know, that they got when they're 19 turns into a really serious problem when they're 50. And they're actually <clears throat> discouraged in the military from going to the, to, to reporting a, a physical or a, a physical problem. And they're really, 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 and I can't overstate this enough, discouraged from <clears throat> reporting an emotional problem. And often if they have an emotional problem or if they report something like a rape or sexual harassment, they'll be what's called chaptered out of the military with what's called an other than honorable discharge. And then they're ineligible for either the GI Bill or, um, <clears throat> or veterans health care. There's about 600,000 people since 1980 who have these bad paper discharges and are denied um, uh, healthcare. And once again, you know, this is a money problem. They don't want to give add the staff the money that would that would be necessary for 600,000 people. So um, the, the one of the interesting problems, Gene, is that meta, you know, these dual eligible veterans, there are many veterans who are obviously over 65 and Medicare eligible. And they can't come to the VA because they don't have a service-connected disability or a low income. And one of the things that we should all be for is for changes in the law, because right now um, the VA is allowed to build private insurance for veterans, some veterans' conditions, for some eligible veterans' conditions, but it's not allowed to build Medicare. And that's crazy because you could add about 4 million more veterans to the VHA population if you change that in law. So I'm not sure I answered your question, but as, as far as I know, there, um, there is no special Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, I do want to mention, though, that there is a, and I hate to use this word advantage because it's been tainted by these you know, dreadful Medicare Advantage plans. Um, but um, there is a VA benefit for Medicare eligible veterans. There was a recent study done by three economists connected to Stanford and the Bureau of Economic, uh, it's called the Bureau of Economic Research. Um, and they did a study of 400,000 dual eligible veterans, i.e. Medicare and, and VA 
HA eligible veterans who had ambulance calls for emergency care, and they were randomly taken to a private sector ER or to the VA. And they studied their 28 day mortality. And if you, a veteran was taken to a private sector emergency room, they had a twice, they were twice as likely to die in the first 28 days. And it cost 21% more in the private sector. And they speculated that the reason why there was this VA survival benefit was because of the coordinated care at the VA is in contrast to the private sector. Uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, in your opening statement was the uh, teaching and research activities that went on at the VA. And uh, I did part of my surgical training at the University of Maryland. And they, shortly after I, I left, and went on to some other training. Uh, they, the, the, um, uh, Baltimore VA moved next door to the University of Maryland Hospital. Right. Uh, I was on the faculty at the University of Louisville here for about 35 years, and uh, many of the uh, physicians practicing in the Louisville VA Hospital uh, are on the U of L faculty. And similarly, uh, the Nashville VA is sort of right next door to Vanderbilt. I mean, this is a really good relationship. It seems to have worked out well in many different places. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts about that are. It just seems to be one of those really good win-win situations that provides the faculty and the medical students uh, an opportunity and also provides good um, clinical services for the veterans. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Mike. Um, Since 1946, Oh, when Omar Bradley started this, um, these affiliations with academic in- institutions, um, the VA, every large VA medical center has usually an affiliation with, with one or more medical centers. And um, it's a fabulous, uh, a fabulous arrangement, not only for teaching, but for research. And so doctors and other clinical staff at the VA will have what's called joint appointments. And this has worked out really well. Um, and it's, it's an interesting partnership because a lot of times um, the veterans, the VA will advertise, you know, we're, we're a great institution because we're connected to UCSF or, or University of Louisville or whatever. And unfortunately, not enough, in my view, academic medical centers will say we're great because we have a connection to the VA. Um, But the the situation works very well because, um, first of all, uh, medical students and residents and fellows get a, a view of a very different model of healthcare. I mean, the VA you know, the kind of healthcare that's delivered at the VA is very different than the kind of healthcare that's delivered at Boston. I mean, the, the model is different because um, it, it's mission driven. It's not fee for service or profit driven. Uh, everybody's on salary and there is much more coordinated care at the VA uh, than there often is in the private sector. Not because, you know, just because of the financial incentives. Um, and um, I think that also uh, there is, you know, it's very, would be very hard to conceive of how medical students or fellows or residents would get any contact with veterans in a systematic way if they weren't at the VA, because, you know, most doctors don't even know if they're treating a veteran. It's not a question like I, I think, or Gene, that I mean, you you could comment on this. I mean, I've been a patient, you know, since I was, let's say, start with because the VA, it's it's discharge to grave, not cradle to grave. I mean, nobody in my entire career as a patient has ever asked me if I was served in the military. How do they know I wasn't a nurse in Vietnam? You know, how do they know my husband wasn't in the service? Um, and so they don't even ask this question. And even with privatization and with the Mission Act, where they're outsourcing a lot of patients to the private sector, the doctors often don't know. I mean, it's the it's the clerks and the billers who know if it's a veteran. 
So I think that you're right, that the system is very good. Unfortunately, they're attacking that as part of the privatization movement. They're trying to create real dissension and division between um, the VA and its academic affiliates um, because uh, they want to destroy what is a, a, one of the jewels in the crown of the VA. And I can, I mean, it's a complicated in the weeds thing that they're doing, but you know, the, the right wing is, is very uh, relentless and, and they are attacking everything that works in the VA because they want it to stop working. Well, hopefully uh, the listeners will appreciate some of the things that uh, you, you, you brought up and we've talked about. Uh, before we, we got around to this, I, I was kind of uh, listening to some podcasts and, and I'm looking up some information to, to be able to ask you intelligent questions about, about some of these things. One of the issues that I noticed is that the mental health and the outsourcing issue, and hopefully you can comment on it so that you've got a veteran who's got, and you are, you alluded to some of this before, how when a veteran goes into the VA hospital, all the acronyms and the things that they use, they know what they're talking about. So if you've got a veteran that lives a good distance from a, a VA hospital and gets outsourced to a, a private mental health provider, th those mental health providers really don't have uh, the experienced skill sets to deal with some of the post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, some of the other issues that, um, that veterans have. I mean, and I, you know, uh, to me, again, this is just another bad example of, 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 you know, on one hand, I guess it's a bad example of a privatization issue. And the other one is just a simple reality of, of dealing with the fact that, that, uh, you know, some veterans live three or four hours away from the nearest facility. So um, perhaps you could share some of your thoughts yeah. about yeah, that. It's so a real issue. I'm so glad you mentioned that because there's so many things to unpack in that. I mean, a lot of veterans, like it, particularly very rural veterans, they, they, you know, complain and I can totally understand that they want convenient healthcare. You know, they want to go to a pulmonologist who's down the street or an oncologist who's down the street or a primary care doc who's down the street or a mental health professional who's down the street. But tragically, if you live in a rural area because of the, the larger problems with rural healthcare, whether you're a veteran or not, it's, it's very unlikely that you're going to find particularly medical specialists down the street because there's not a population. I mean, you're a surgeon and, and, and Gene is Gene a surgeon too, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's a rural right. surgeon. So he's, he's, you're, 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 you're speaking to his, his knowledge source and I'm well, hoping would, that he'll make some comments when you're, I when would you're love done. for Gene to make comments about that, but you know, what most people don't understand and you guys really understand is that you have to have enough people to, to, to practice your skills on as a surgeon. I mean, you don't want to get a cabbage from a guy who's, or a woman who's done do does 10 a year. I mean, I when I had my cataracts done, I went to a guy who does, you know, I don't know how many a day, right? And and you need a certain population uh, density in order to um, to maintain your skills uh, as a surgeon, as, as any kind of healthcare professional. Um, and people, you know, if you have if you live in a rural area, I mean, how likely is it that, you know, you're going to have enough patients, particularly enough paying patients, right, to sustain your skills and practice. And so the reality is that most of these veterans who live in rural areas, I mean, if you want to live in a rural area, that's kind of like the, you know, you're going to have to travel for high quality, highly skilled healthcare professionals. Um, the other thing is mental health. I mean, 55% uh, of American counties, all of them rural, have no psychiatrist, no social worker, no psychologist. So where exactly, you know, the, the, the privatizers who constructed this thing called the VA Mission Act of 
2018, you know, they claim, oh, you know, you if you if you have to drive more than 60 miles or, you know, wait more than uh, 28 days for an appointment, you can find one by snapping your fingers in the private sector. And that just isn't true because we don't have, we have a shortage of primary care providers in America. We have, you know, essentially mental health deserts in in much of rural America. We have a shortage of primary care physicians in San Francisco. Uh, You have 49% of American psychiatrists won't accept any insurance whatsoever, any insurance. Um, People with PTSD, a signature, in uh, injury of, of many of these conflicts, uh, the, the, the gold standard treatments are prolonged exposure therapy, PE and cognitive <clears throat> processing therapy. There isn't a single provider or there are very few pro- psychologists in San Francisco Bay Area who know how to deliver PE and CBT, CPT, and they won't accept insurance uh, to pay for it. I mean, I was so impressed with what I saw at the VA that I decided to try to get CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, for my travel anxiety. And I couldn't find a therapist who would take insurance. The one I did find, who was, it turned out, cheap, charged me $235 an hour. I had to sign a thing promising I wouldn't submit a bill to Medicare. And I could maybe submit my bill to um, uh, to a private sector insurance, but um, you know, and and she was cheap. I mean, it's usually three seventy five, four hundred and twenty five an hour. So you know, do the math. Twenty sessions. How many vets can have that under their mattress? You know. Um, so I'd love to hear Jean's comment on this because the the crisis in rural health is is awful, and and veterans are going to have to travel often. I mean, Kaiser won't even accept you as an enrollee if you live more than 50 miles from a Kaiser facility. I'm going to let Jean make a comment, but I just want to tell you, I take Irish whiskey for my travel anxiety. But I'm Jewish, Mike. It doesn't work. You know, I would like... Well, well, the best one is 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 a is a whiskey called Red Breast. You might want to give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to remind folks that the views and opinions expressed here (laughs) are those of the speakers. All right, all right, yeah. Well, we needs you, Mike. You know, a lot of veterans would be very happy with that. Well, the problems I've seen with the uh, uh, the veterans uh, the system is I just give you uh, two examples uh, uh, I had a uh, patient uh, who was ha- has who was had to travel uh, about an hour south to see his primary care physician and then he had to travel from his hometown an hour north to get to the VA center to get his treatment uh, for uh, uh, for his lung cancer. And I it, it didn't make sense. Uh, there are a lot of patients who do that. Had another patient <coughs> who was uh, who lived in uh, Horse Cave, Kentucky. And he was traveling all the way to Tennessee to see his primary care physician. And then if he had to be hospitalized, he had to go to the VA uh, uh, center in, in Nashville rather than the VA in, in Louisville. And then he, was, he had a condition that was not being treated. And finally, they gave him an appointment to see a doctor uh, close by. So I think that really creates some problems for, for veterans, uh, and particularly since some of these veterans uh, don't have a way for, to get transported. Uh, fortunately, most of them have a relative who will take them that distance, but uh, it, it creates a real problem for the veterans. And I think... Uh, 
probably uh, creating private physicians uh, in uh, uh, small towns who can accept veteran patients uh, would be one answer to this problem. Well, let me make a, a, a little different um, comment about the VA hospitals. <clears throat> I, was a, I was a consultant at the Louisville VA for probably 25 years, and I ran the VA tumor conference for 10 years, showed up every Tuesday morning at, at 7 a.m., and so I spent a fair amount of time in the Louisville VA doing one thing or another. And um, I, 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 I sort of come away with a, the, the sort of, a, for many of these veterans, the, the Louisville VA hospital isn't just the healthcare facility. I was going to sound kind of goofy, but I, I, you know, I, I recognize that they'd be sitting around in the outpatient clinic and joking. With, it was kind of a meeting place. I mean, these guys would hang out, uh, you know, outside in the parking area. And um, it, it is a healthcare facility on one hand, but on the other hand, it's kind of a place where veterans go, where there's a bunch of them together. They tell stories, they hang out. Um, uh, this isn't going anywhere in terms of trying to convince a politician to, <laughs> to do any funding, but it does. It, it is an interesting added benefit um, uh, uh, that this facility provides for veterans. I, I wonder if you've noticed anything like that in your travels um, through the various VA facilities that you've you've consulted with or, or, or med care. You're observed. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. And I actually think it is an argument for funding because a lot of these vets suffer from serious uh, readjustment problems. Uh, they have huge amount of mental health problems, yeah. 30%, 40%, and they have social isolation. And you know, there is no divide between the mind and the body. And so bringing folks together, <coughs> I mean, <coughs> I have never seen anything like it. There's a community of care for these veterans, not only for veterans, but for staff. And you get an advantage um, <clears throat> in that that helps your health. I mean, I sat in on several peer support groups for uh, PTSD for veterans. These were Vietnam vets largely who, uh, 50 of them, and they said it was kind of gut-wrenching. They had put up with, you know, 50 years almost of, of, of horrific problems and finally gone to the VA. And they all said, if and this was their family. These groups of vets were their family. Can you imagine the University of Louisville dedicating a psychologist, a, a special psychologist to run peer support groups for years and years and years for the same people? And these guys, you know, the politician look at that and say, oh, how come they can't do 10 sessions and get over it? These, you don't get over this. You don't get over the stories of people being blown up, of going into villages and killing civilians, of killing children in Iraq. You don't get over that. You live with it. It's a chronic condition like diabetes. You know what I mean? And you'd never say to a diabetic, oh, you only need 10 weeks of insulin and you should be fine. Why do, you why do we have this idea that a, you know, a vet who suffered military sexual trauma or was raped or you know, by, by his or her you know, comrade in arms or, or saw the stuff that, that we put these people through in these you know, elective adventures that we go on, why should they get over it? You know, they're never going to get over it. And I, I had an extraordinary, I mean, I'm a patient, you know, we're all patients, right? When was the last time you went to a, a doctor's waiting room and sat and had a chat with somebody, right? I mean, the closest thing experience I ever have that the veterans have where, you know, I have, know I have something in common with the, my fellow patients is, you know, getting mammograms where you're all sitting, you know, we're all women, we all have tits. We're all terrified of what's going to happen. 
when they squish us in these machines and nobody says a word to anybody if in the in the VA they're all chatting away you know and uh, I don't think we should that that affects people's health that affects people's health outcomes I want to return to Jean's question because you know I mean the reality is that you sometimes have to drive or travel hundreds of miles to get good care. Kaiser patient in California, and you want to have a brain surgery. If you live in Sacramento, you're going to have to drive three hours to Redding because that's, I mean, to uh, to Redwood City because that's where they do it. Um, you know, I mean, um, I, I, you know, it's not only convenience, it's quality. I mean, if you can find a great surgeon or primary care provider or mental health provider in a rural county near you, then maybe we should pay for it. But mostly you can't find those people. I mean, I personally drive an hour to see my dentist. And when and I live in the Bay Area and I pass, I don't know how many dentists office, you know, on the way to my dentist, that would be 10 minutes. I mean, there's a dentist literally three minutes down the hill from me. But I go to my dentist and I schlep, you know, it could be an hour and a half in traffic. Now COVID has, you know, made it a little better. And I go there because like he's the best dentist in the world, you know. And the other thing is, you know, no insurance system allows you to go out of network and pays for it. Um, I mean, and and I mean, if we want to have veterans being able to go anywhere they want, <clears throat> then we need a Medicare for all or a single payer system, because if we're going to let these vets go anywhere they want and take the money to pay for more expensive fragmented care in the private sector, it's going to cost, um, you know, probably seven times as much as the, as the VA budget for clinical care is now. And what we've seen is that they provide um, lower quality care often, and there's no oversight uh, and accountability uh, for higher cost. And my argument to, to Medicare for all folks is, you know, the only way you can give veterans choice without bankrupting the VA system, which is their intention, I mean, the right wing's intention is to have a, you know, system where the government pays for everything. And if you're Joe Smith veteran, and you want to go to Mike Flynn to get your surgery rather than the VA doc, then it all comes out of the same pot and it's not bankrupting the Veterans Health Administration. And I think Medicare for all folks who are single payer folks, you know, should make that argument um, that the only solution to privatization, because they want to take the money from the VA right into the private sector. But if you have the government paying for all care, then you can go wherever you want and the money will follow you and the VA system would be better funded because we'd have more money because we would have more money for everybody. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I just think that we can't afford for everybody to get what they want when they want it and where they want it. We don't have the money. Well, let me make two quick comments. One about the VA, again, as a special place and about politicians, and I'm going to let Gene have another shot at you. But uh, I made rounds uh, at the University of Louisville Hospital at one of the private hospitals or not, it was a nonprofit in, in Louisville and the VA and and making rounds at the VA for the same reasons that we mentioned earlier, it was really a different atmosphere. They, they, they are, they're all there. These guys are all together and, and their relationship with each other uh, was quite different than making rounds at, at a, at a, at a, a private hospital, nonprofit or, you know, whatever, or the university of Louisville hospital, which has a very high indigent population. So it is the facility is is a is a special place for veterans, not just well, it's part of their health care, but it adds it adds a 
uh, a factor of of uh, I'm not I, I guess just the the fact that all these people are together at a time and they've all got this common background. So quick- you, I mean, Mike, I'd like to ask you a question, if I might. Did you find it? Do you find that the staff, the staff who are 100 percent at the VA, the, the docs and the nurses and so forth have a different relationship to their patients and and also even to each other because it's not fee for service there and they're also more sort of mission driven did you find that or not you know i'm not sure i i uh, you know as a surgeon i i passed through there you know uh, and so i i don't know that i i spent enough time in the hospital i if i was an internist or medical oncologist or somebody who worked in the hospital on the floors all the time, I would probably have a better view about that. But I did recognize this sort of sense of camaraderie, uh, both in the outpatient areas uh, and in the uh, in the uh, uh, on the floors and in the operating room. Um, Well, you know, I want to tell you a story um, because um, and this is this is, I think, you know, would be of interest to you, you are both as surgeons. So I have a friend who's a psychologist at the Milwaukee VA. Oh, dear. I don't know. Should I stop because there's a phone ringing? Yeah, that'd be fine. We we, 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 we can just hang out if you want to call, answer the phone. Um, um, no, I mean, I, I don't want the, the noise to come through. No, that's fine. Don't. Okay. We've had all no, kinds of things. I, I have a friend. I have a friend who's a... Um, who's a psychologist at the Milwaukee VA, and she gets a phone call from a surgeon in the Milwaukee VA who's going to get ha, uh, do a gallbladder operation on an Iraq vet. And the Iraq vet comes in, you know, to the ward and has a flip out. And, and, and they're like very worried about um, how they're going to do surgery on this guy. And they look in their common medical record and see that this psychologist is his psychologist. And they call her up, the surgeon calls her up and says, you know, Joe's having a flip out. And she goes, oh, Joe, you know, and she says, here, you need to do this, this and this, that'll calm him down. And then she walks over to see Joe on the ward and they end up, you know, doing the surgery. And I suspect that that would be, it would be very difficult to have that happen in the private sector because, you know, Joe's psychologist would probably be out there in some office, God knows where, um, you know, he'd be interrupting her, her day. Um, they're not in the same place. And um, I, I think that what I've seen is camaraderie and that kind of collaboration um, uh, with, with, you know, clinicians, not just this camaraderie um, between um, the patients. Yeah, it's definitely what makes the VA a special place. What one more comment, and I'm gonna then I'm gonna pass over to Gene. We're getting sort of close to the end here, Suzanne. I think we've got about eight minutes left. Let me tell you a story about politicians and and healthcare because uh, this is really important in the you know in the long term in this country. Uh, there was a general surgeon in Louisville uh, who. Uh, toward the end of his career, started having some vision problems and he decided he left practice and he ran for for public office and he became uh, a member of the House of Representatives um, in in Kentucky, the Kentucky House of Representatives representing the area where he lived. Uh, He gave a talk, this is probably 20, 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, at the Louisville Surgical Society. And, and he said two things very clearly by the time he was finished. It was a good, good talk. He, number one, making laws are like making sausage. And he, he described the situation where he sponsored a bill. By the time the bill got through all the committee process and it changed so much, he voted against his own bill. <laughs> and the second thing he said absolutely clearly is these people, the other the politicians don't know anything about health care. He was very clear about that. And, and that I mean, that's a really killer issue uh, in terms of trying to get something good going in this country. 
So uh, we're down to about five more minutes. I'm passing the ball over to Gene, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be you know, we're going to be winding this up in a little bit, Suzanne. Uh, I just want to make a comment about the association between VA and medical schools. When I was a resident, the VA was certainly one of the best teaching programs that we had. Yeah, yeah. and we had just the right amount of supervision for the uh, the students and the residents. We always had somebody available if we needed help, but we also uh, uh, could take care of the veterans on our own if we could handle it. And I thought it was a fantastic program. And I just, just, just for that reason alone, I think the VA needs to persist. And, I, and I, I've talked to residents in the last few years, and they still have good experiences at the VA. And so I think this is very, very important that we preserve the VA just, just for that reason, because we've got to train doctors uh, uh, for the future. The, uh, I'll remember that, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Harbeck uh, was chief of VA, and uh, Dr. Harbeck was so different than uh, most of the other attendings. If you ask him to see a patient, he didn't just go with you over there and ask him a few questions. He would go over for an hour and spend an hour with the patient and then come back and see you and tell you what you needed to do. And the highest compliment I ever got as a resident was when I finished the VA, Dr. Harbeck said, Gene, you did a good job. And he didn't tell very many people that. <laughs> Good to hear it. James. I got, I got um, a question. What's the future of the VA? Well, well before let, let me, let me, oh, we got two minutes left. Let, let me add to, I was going to ask the same kind of question and ask you what the first two or three most important issues are for VA health. Remember, we're, we're down to two minutes. <laughs> so you have to I talk about the future of the VA could be very bright if healthcare reform advocates would really embrace and, and learn something about the VA and what a positive shining light it can be. I think we need to expand it. I think we need to go on the offensive, not just be advertisers. We need, we can afford to give more money to veterans care. We can afford to open up uh, the VA underutilized VA hospitals and facilities to um, veterans who are have bad paper discharges to veterans who can't prove their uh, low income or or have higher incomes or no service connected disabilities. We should be opening up VAs to family members of veterans and to people like us. We should have the same choice veterans now have. I should be able to go to my friend. <laughs> the primary care doctor at the VA, who I call up when I can't reach my own primary care doctor, which is often. Uh, and I think the future is bright, depending our on our political will. Suzanne, I Suzanne, I don't mean to interrupt you, but Mark's around to pull a plug on us here. Uh, thank you very much. You were you were a great guest. We enjoyed talking with you. And Mark's going to make his last few comments because we're we're out of time. Yeah, just wow. Uh, Ms. Gordon, is there a website or or something, uh, a location folks can reach out to you and learn more? Yes. Um, anybody, I'd be happy to give you my email, which is sg at suzannegordon.com. Um, you can go to my website, which is suzannegordon.com or I think it's SuzanneCGordon.com. Um, I would really recommend you going to the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute website, which is veteranspolicy.org. Um, I'd love to hear from folks if, if they have any questions. Um, and I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to do this and for showing the interest. Fantastic. Um, I'm also associated with some folks in the Veterans for Peace movement uh, yes, here locally, yes. and uh, I'll turn them on to this broadcast, and and they may reach out to you. They've got a radio show. No, uh, let me just say that another group that's really involved in this is the Veterans for Peace. They have a save. Oh my goodness. Um, let me say that again. The, another group that's very involved in this 
is Veterans for Peace. They have a Save Our VA campaign, and I'm privileged to be an associate member and to be on the steering committee of that campaign. Okay, fantastic. Uh, for folks who want to learn more information about Kentuckians for single-payer health care can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shively, Ms. Gordon, fantastic program. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great.